If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Isaiah 54. We're in Isaiah chapter 54 as we continue in our sermon series that we have entitled A Certain Hope in Uncertain Times. As we come to Isaiah chapter 54 today, we have just looked at Isaiah 53, and after telling us in Isaiah 53 about the servant of the Lord suffering for our sin on our behalf, as we get to Isaiah 54, God calls us in response to that truth to rejoice, to burst into song. You see it right there in Isaiah 54 and verse 1, right? God says, sing, break forth into singing, cry aloud. Your translation may say, shout for joy. It's one of the reasons why we're saving more songs for after the sermon today so that we can respond to God's word and what he calls us to do. God says here, let joyful songs burst out of you. You see, the work of the sin-bearing servant is good news. We should cheer and sing and be glad. The text will tell us that we should do so because God is not angry with us. That we will not suffer the full extent of the consequences of our sin because the suffering servant has taken the punishment for our sin on our behalf, that we won't have to go to hell, that every spiritual blessing is ours because of the finished work of Christ on the cross, and that should bring great joy to the people of God. In fact, Isaiah 53 that we looked at last week and Isaiah 54 that we look at today, these two things together show us a couple of things that are really important to God. First, it shows us, Isaiah 53 does, it shows us that believing the right things is really important. Isaiah 53 is very rich in doctrine. We saw last week that you can really build a theology of sin. We said there was a virtual thesaurus for words for sin. And even the simplicity that a child can understand sin as people going their own way. Uh, it's so rich theologically as it points out justification substitution, atonement, intercession, all these rich theological concepts we see handled in Isaiah 53. And so it's important to God that we believe the right things. But secondly, Isaiah 54 shows us that it's also important to God that we respond in the right way. You see, God does want pureness of doctrine in our heads, but he also wants exuberant joy in response to those truths in our hearts. And he calls us to that here in Isaiah 53 and Isaiah chapter 54. In fact, in Isaiah 54, God through Isaiah gives us three images of great joy that helps us to see how we should respond. And so I just want to look at these three images with you, and then we can rejoice together. The first image that I see here in verses 1 through 5 is the image of a barren widow having offspring. A barren widow having offspring. Look at it with me there, verses 1 through 5 of Isaiah 54. Hear now God's word. Sing, O barren one who did not bear... Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. 
For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back, lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate places. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth. He is called. Pray with me as we come to God's Word. Oh, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would send your Spirit now to open our minds to believe the right way, to open our hearts to respond in the right way. And I ask that you would do all this even through the preaching of your word, even through the sin-stained lips of a foolish preacher. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. The first image Isaiah gives us in Isaiah 54 is this image of a woman who never had kids. You see that in verse 1, right? Sing, one who did not bear, you who have not been in labor. So there's this woman who's not, who's not had any kids, and she's now a widow. You see that in verse 4, where it says, the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. So what we have here is a, is a woman who was married but was not able to have children, and her husband has died, and so she is now a widow. And because the Bible teaches that we're not to have sex outside of marriage, the thought is she'll never have kids now, right? She doesn't have a husband. She couldn't have kids when she did have a husband. Her situation seems to be hopeless, in fact, the text says there's great shame and disgrace on this woman. You see, in ancient times, a woman's main job was to have children. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that that's what the Bible says women are to do. In fact, if you read about the excellent wife in Proverbs 31, it talks a lot about her work outside the home, considering a field and buying it. Uh, trading with the merchants in a way that is profitable for her. She does a lot outside the home. But at this time, in ancient times, a woman's main job, it was seen, was to have kids. And it was very important in an agrarian society because if you had kids, it provided workers for the home and workers for the field. The more kids you had, the more free labor you had. So it was greater financial security for your family. Uh, as you got older, having many kids was retirement security for you to have someone to take care of you in your old age as they didn't have social security. And to not have kids brought shame and disgrace. You see that in verse 4, right? He says, fear not, you will not be ashamed. You will not be disgraced, is what he says here. And why is that? Well, you see this widow who doesn't have kids is one of the most vulnerable people in this society because she didn't have children to take care of her. She's totally at the mercy of others who will take care of her. 
Yet the reason to rejoice is that she's told to enlarge her tents because she will have multitudes of offspring. That's what verses 2 and 3 say, right? He says, make your tent bigger. Let the curtains be stretched out. Don't hold back. Lengthen your cords. Make your tent bigger because you're going to have more kids than the person who was married. You will have multitudes of offspring. Now, how is that going to happen? How is it that she has offspring? What is it that will produce this offspring? Well, in Isaiah 53, we've just read about this. In verse 10, we saw that it was the will of the Lord to crush the suffering servant, that the suffering servant has been put to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his, and there's the word, offspring. And the Lord will prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. God is saying through the work of the suffering servant that God is adding people to his family. Now, let's put the image all together now that we've seen the parts of it. God here compares his people to this disgraced, barren widow who's totally dependent on the mercy of those around her. You see, Israel, God's people, did not bring God's salvation to the world. He had called Abraham and his descendants to be a light to the nations, and they had not been a light to the nations. They had not produced fruit But God is saying, despite your shortcomings, despite your failures, enlarge your tents. Because you're going to have more offspring than you can imagine because of the work of the suffering servant on behalf that's going to draw people into God's family. That through the suffering servant, God is making a family for himself. That's the image. How does this apply to us? Well, as the church... We have fallen far short of being salt in our society, of being a light to the nations. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul quotes Isaiah 54 in Galatians 4. And the application that he makes is this. He says, trying to achieve spiritual things in your own flesh or by human effort does not work. But dying to self and allowing the Holy Spirit to work in and through us will be fruitful. The application for us is this. We can look good on the outside. We can be busy. We can talk and say the right things. Uh, we We can act in the right way. But only the Holy Spirit can produce fruit. That's why in Galatians 5, after Quoting Isaiah 54 and Galatians 4, he goes on to talk about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. And Galatians 6 is about doing good to others, that we do all those things in the power that the Holy Spirit gives us. This is why, I'm turning a corner here, don't let me lose you, right? We have to have the Spirit in order to do what God calls us to do. We have to have the Spirit in order to do things the right way, in order to be fruitful, in order to serve other people We have to be spirit-driven. So the question is, how do you get the spirit? Here's where I'm taking a turn on you. This is why gathering and scattering is important to us. Let me explain. Last fall, we looked at the book of Acts. 
And what we saw is that God sent his spirit in Acts 2 at Pentecost. Peter was there. All the apostles were filled with the Holy Spirit. The believers were. People got saved. There was much fruit. Then they went out and began to do things that God had called them to do. Then they would gather again, and they would be filled with the Spirit again. Well, I thought they'd already been filled. Well, they were filled again as they gathered together in worship and had fellowship and prayer. And as they gathered together as the people that got over the Word and fellowshiped in the context of worship, they would be filled with the Spirit again, and then they would drive them out with great boldness, and they would scatter and they would do the work of God and being salt and light wherever he sent them. And then we'd come back together and they would be filled with the Spirit again. And we said, being filled with the Spirit is more like filling your car with gas. It's something that happens over and over and over again. And the thing the Spirit loves to use is when we come together and worship over the Word and we pray and we have fellowship with one another. And those are the things that God tends to use to fill us with His Spirit. So as a result, you'll see this September the 27th, but because you're here on Labor Day weekend, you get a sneak preview of the new mission statement that we have as Redeemer Church. That's With that background in mind, the mission statement says, through worship, teaching, and fellowship, Redeemer Church gathers under biblical leadership to equip spirit-filled believers to scatter Joining God in the work of multiplication and dominion in the Shoals area and around the world. That's a mouthful. We have a shortened version of it that you can put on a t-shirt or at the end of your emails or on a pen. Gathering and scattering to see the kingdom come. We'll unpack that more September 27th. I hope you'll plan to be here with us for that as we talk about it together after that 4 o'clock worship service. But right now, let me just ask you a few questions. Is it a priority to you to gather and to scatter? We tend to like one of those things, but not the other. We tend to do one more naturally than the other. But is your priority to gather, to come together as the people of God so that we can be filled up with his spirit and then scatter so that we see his kingdom come more and more wherever it is that God has you planted? Do you long to see that? Do you pray for that? Do you work for that? Are you thinking and praying about how can I be used of God to support the worship and work inside the walls of this church and how can I be used of God outside the walls of the church? We're going to be talking about that more this fall as well. But see God's promise here. That through the work of the suffering servant, he's going to be drawing many to himself. He has justified many. And God is telling his people, expand the tent. Make it bigger. Get ready for these people that I'm bringing into my family. And so I call us as the people of God to be ready to do that as we believe the right things and respond the right way in great joy. There's a second image that God gives here as he's showing us how should we respond. He says we should respond as an unfaithful estranged wife who's been reunited with her husband. Look with me at verses 6 to 10. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer." 
This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. Wow. Beautiful, stirring words. What's the image here God gives us? The image is a separated couple who's been reunited You heard Lee in the opening prayer talking about God and his bride, which is how he refers to his people. It's a theme in the Bible that the people of God are his bride, that God and his bride were separated, but now they've been reunited. It's very interesting to me what Isaiah has said earlier that is not repeated here. It's interesting that God does not mention the reason for the separation. But if you've been reading or you've been with us through the book of Isaiah, you will know that in Isaiah 1 and verse 21, God is speaking of his wayward people. And he tells us that his faithful people have become, his words, a whore. Now, I asked some folks, can you say that in a sermon? I'm not really sure that's something you can say. But God says that in Isaiah 1 and verse 21... And the reason he says it is because his people who had, were his, who he was united to in an intimate relationship like marriage, had gone their own way. They had looked for what only God could give them in other places besides with God. They had violated the covenant relationship that they had with their God. So God is saying here, I was angry and I had a right to be angry. But God says he's not angry anymore, that his love will never be removed from his bride, that there's a covenant peace. Why? What has changed? Isaiah 53, the suffering servant has come. He was pierced for our transgression. He was wounded for our iniquity. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed, Isaiah 53 tells us. Verse 11 says, many have been accounted righteous as a result of his work. So at this point, God does not even mention their sin. But what he does mention in verse 8 is that his everlasting love will always be on us, that his compassion rests on his unfaithful people. That just like Noah, he'll never destroy the, the, the earth again by flood. He says, just like that. He will not be angry with his people. He will not rebuke his people. Verse 10 is beautiful. Look at it. He says, the mountains may depart. Your translation may say they may be shaken. The hills may be removed, which it's very unlikely that would happen. Right? That's a hard thing to happen. He says, but my steadfast love shall not depart. Well, love won't be shaken. My covenant of peace will not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on his people. Beautiful words, great promises from the Lord. You know, I like the way Isaiah 53 said it better, right? In verse 6 where it talks about, you know, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each has gone his own way and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. I like that better, right? Because I like being thought of as more of a, a fluffy sheep 
who I didn't really mean to, but I just kind of wandered off my, the wrong way. And Lord let, somebody, Lord let somebody else take the punishment for that. The image here is much more intense, right? God says we were married. We were in an intimate relationship with each other. And you weren't a fluffy sheep who went astray. You were an unfaithful wife. You cheated on your husband. You violated this most intimate relationship. But God is so faithful. Listen, if you're honest with yourself, if you know your own heart at all, you know we have all gone looking other places for what only God can give us. We've been so unfaithful to him. We have sold ourselves or given ourselves to so many things. And for many of us, we don't even feel like we can come back to God. We feel dirty. We feel so unworthy. But for all of us who recognize ourselves as spiritual whores, God says, for those people, God says because of the finished work of Christ on the cross, that his everlasting love rests on us, that he has compassion for us, that he will not be angry, that he will not rebuke us. He doesn't even name the sin here. He has separated it from his mind. Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so is he, he separated our sin from us. And he promises that his steadfast love, that his covenant of peace will always remain on us. If we really believe that, then it moves us to great joy. And in those moments that we do not rejoice, I question whether we are believing the truth of what God has done. Because when we see what has been done on our behalf, it should lead us to great rejoicing. There's one other image. Look at it with me, beginning in verse 11. This image is a destroyed city that is beautifully rebuilt. Look at verse 11 to the end of the chapter. O afflicted one, your translation may say, O afflicted city, Storm-tossed and not comforted. Behold, I will set your stones in antimony. Your translation may say turquoise. And lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate. Your translation may say of rubies. Your gates of carbuncles. Some translations say sparkling jewels. And all your wall of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression. Your translation may say you'll be far from tyranny. For you shall not fear, and from fear, for it shall not come near you. If anyone stirs up strife, it's not for me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fires of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravager to destroy. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall confute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication from me declares the Lord." What's the image here? The image you see there in verse 11 is an afflicted, storm-damaged city that is rebuilt with precious metals and precious jewels. 
Who would think or even imagine they could build a city like this? Who could do that? Who would have the wealth to invest that many precious jewels in building a city? And of course, the answer to that question is God himself. And it is this city that he describes. This is where we will live forever. You see, much of this description in Isaiah 54 is repeated in Revelation 21 of the new Jerusalem when God makes all things new. You see him pointing us to the future here in the text in verse 17. He says, this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. Your translation may say this is our inheritance instead of heritage. And their validation from me because of our righteousness that he has been given to us, we will have in full. And he points us to the future in verse 13 that all your children will enjoy peace. The word is shalom. Great will be the, the peace and the shalom of your children. The image here of this destroyed city being rebuilt in beauty reminds us that this world destroyed by sin will be made new by God. That a day is coming when there will be no more shame, there will be no more fear and fighting, there will be no more hate and blame, there will be no more oppression and tyranny, there will be no more injustice, no more pain, no more decay, no more death. That this city we live in, this world will be made new into a place of great beauty where there's no more death or mourning or crying or pain. We talk sometimes this way as Christians and, and we begin to wonder in our heart, that's great what's going to happen. I'm excited about my inheritance that I'm going to get. I love thinking about that world that I'm going to live in, but boy, that's not where we live today. How does that really help me get through the day today, knowing that God's going to do that in the future? How does that change the way that we live our lives today? Well, I think it changes it very much. Let me illustrate it like this. During quarantine, when there was no sports being played anywhere, there were some of the sports stations that began to replay old games. And I thought, wow, that's pathetic that people are watching games that have already taken place that we know the end of. And, of course, after a few weeks, I was right there watching, paying attention. When my team came on, I wanted to, to remember and to relive those moments. So I began to watch. But as I began to watch... Games that were being replayed, it was different. It was so different than, than watching games live. You see, when my team is playing, when I have a, a dog in the fight, so to speak, I live and die with every play. I don't really enjoy watching the game. It's a fitful kind of a thing. It's tiring. Every setback is a disaster leading to despair. Every game is celebrated, but there's always a thought, is it going to be good enough for us to win? Is it enough for us to prevail? But during quarantine, when I watched these games that I already knew how they ended, I relaxed a lot more. It was easier to watch. I noticed little things that I hadn't noticed before. Setbacks didn't throw me into despair. Because I knew that the setbacks would be overcome. I could enjoy the good things that happened for my team because I knew how it was going to end. 
So I knew that they would prevail and I could relax and enjoy watching the game. That's the difference this image makes in our lives. Let me ask you, which way do you tend to live life? Do you live and die in every moment? Is life fitful and tiring? Is every setback a disaster leading to despair? Every good thing that happens, you wonder, well, that's good, but when's the bad thing going to happen? Is it going to be enough to prevail? Is it going to be enough to overcome so that we don't really enjoy the good things that happen in life? Listen, we know how this one ends. We just read it here in Isaiah 54. Peace, prosperity, righteousness, shalom, wellness in all aspects of our life, the protection of God, being taught by him, knowing him more. That is our inheritance. We know how this one ends so we can relax. We can take time to notice little things. Setbacks don't have to throw us into despair because we know that the setbacks will be overcome. We can enjoy the gains of the kingdom because we know how this will end and that our God has won the victory and that he will be victorious and that he will preserve his church so that we can relax and enjoy life. Or as Isaiah 54 begins, we can sing, we can shout for joy because God has won the victory. He will draw many people into this family through us. Despite us, his steadfast love will never depart from us. His covenant of peace will never be removed. He has a glorious future for us where this sin-plagued world will be rebuilt in glorious splendor. And we will live in it so we can endure the brokenness of today because we know how this one ends. So I call us as the people of God. Rejoice, burst into song, shout for joy. Let's pray and ask God to help us to do that right now. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I do pray that you would open our minds to the truth of your word, to the glorious future that you have in store for us, to the things that you have accomplished for us right now, that we can enjoy your steadfast love now that we can enjoy your covenant of peace now, that the bad things will be used for our good, and that the best things are yet to come. I pray that you would help us to believe those things. And I pray that belief in the, the truths of your word would lead your people to great joy, that we would relax, that we would enjoy life that setbacks would not send us to despair, that, that gains could be celebrated knowing that the gates of hell will not prevail against your church. And you will bring your wayward people all the way home. Lord, we thank you and we praise you now. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.